hello and welcome to episode 149 of the 1099 for the week of May 21st, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renaudin, and with me today is the Deputy Managing Editor for MMAFighting.com, the treasurer at the Mixed Martial Arts Journalist Association, and an LA resident, Mark Ramundi. Mark, how are you doing today? Hello, sir. How are you? I'm I'm great. I, we were just talking about this before we started recording. Uh, recently in LA, this is actually the first LA podcast I've done. I currently don't own a lamp, so I am in a dark, warm room in Culver City with my dog sleeping behind me. It's it, I'm in that moving phase where there's still boxes everywhere. How long did it take for you once you first moved to actually remove all of the boxes and it seemed like someone actually lived there? Uh, first of all, moving is, is just one of the worst things ever. And I'm sure that you know that you've probably moved more than I have. Uh, move, moving, moving cross-country was okay because I was able to pretty much bring everything I needed from New York to LA. I flew, I didn't drive. Oh, so I pretty much just kind of jettisoned everything that I didn't need. And I just left it or I, I gave it away or I sold it before I left New York. Um, so when I, when I first moved to LA, I moved in with my girlfriend. Um, she, li- she lived in a small apartment in Hollywood, a studio apartment. Um, so I lived there. I lived there for about two or three weeks while we were looking for a place for ourselves mm. to share. And that move was actually far, far harder than than my move cross country was because I don't know how she had so much stuff in the, in a studio. <laughs> she can probably hear me; she's in the other room. But uh, I don't know how I don't know how she had so much stuff in a studio and and just I was I was like floored about all the boxes that we had and, and we moved. But it was just it was just a just a crazy experience. It's amazing how much stuff you can store in the smallest of apartments. I lived in Jacksonville for four years and was super Spartan. Like I would, people would come in and be like, it looks like you are renting this place. Like there's like barely anything on the walls because I knew it wasn't going to be a long-term solution. But when I was moving, I super underestimated just the magnitude of what it takes to get everything into boxes. I wasn't even selling everything. Like I sold all my furniture, sold just about everything. And I was still the night before being like, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. And the driving part was the nightmare of it all. It was 35 hours. It was three days. Uh, I had to stop in like the worst part of Texas you've ever seen in your entire life where I stayed at a motel six and I 95% sure I caught something there and like this much better Arizona hotel, but it's been, it's been crazy. Are, Are you, we were talking a little bit about this before. Are you now more of an LA guy than New York guy. Are you still a New York sports guy, or are you starting to get into LA sports? Well, I'm, I'm definitely not into the LA sports. I'm still, and I will always be a New York sports fan. I'm, I'm, I'm a big Mets fan. Um, I'm a big. Well, I mean, I, I was at one point a Knicks fan, a big Knicks fan. Not so much anymore. I've kind of lost, uh, lost track of that. I'm a, I'm a Giants fan, St. John's basketball, uh, and I, and I don't really. Uh, don't really follow the LA sports all that much, to be honest. I would assume sports is very much where you were born is where that happens. And you also, of course, went to college in New York. And I was, I, I always play the game of I'm going to look through this person's LinkedIn page just to like, see if there's any like holes that I don't know about, any things I didn't know. And you got your journalism degree in 2006. So at that time, Good when, you got that, <laughs> when you got that degree, was print on your mind like did you see this as i want to write for a newspaper i want to have a column did it seem at that time at all viable to report news and make a living on the internet in any capacity it was it was a weird time where it was kind of in that in that transition period when i graduated college in 2006 and it seems crazy to say that now because everything is everything is online i mean everything is online online is it but but then it was kind of like people people were talking about it's going to be that it's going to be digital it's going to be online. I remember I took a course, uh, my senior year, called I think it was like a digital media or something like that, like you know online online journalism, and that was the only course that I took in online oh journalism. God. There was nothing else. There's only one course in college, and I mean, 2006 doesn't feel that long ago to me at least anyway. I I don't think it is that long ago. Te- I mean technically speaking, and and there was not much to offer as far as learning how to do things in, in a digital world at that time. Uh, so I was, yeah, I mean, I was, I was definitely thinking more along the lines of, of print and, and of newspapers. And my first job out of college was at a small weekly newspaper in Queens. And I kind of figured that that would be my future. Uh, I mean, I, 
the the web was certainly on my radar, and it, and it was very much on my radar shortly after. But to, to I mean to, to to sum it up, I mean when I was in college, the the college newspaper like didn't even have a website. We like our our group group of people started like the website when when we were in college um, oh at at St. John's University in Queens. And when I when I got the job right after college at at, at the Times Ledger newspapers in Queens. There was barely any website, so we kind of had to start a, like a brand new website for them too. It was it was a whole different world then. I'll never forget. I was job shadowing in high school for a senior project, and I was going to it was three different local newspapers, and this was two thousand nine, two thousand ten, something like that. And every single person I would interview for this project, it would immediately say. Like, get out while you still can. Don't do this. Like, don't actually get an education and spend money on a degree at that moment because I was about to get into college in 2010 uh, and get into print. It's just like the people who are here are going to hold on to their jobs as long as you can, as long as they can, and everything else is going online. What sort of advice were you getting from people before you got into working for that smaller paper that you had mentioned in Queens? Were people kind of starting to sniff this out and realize that things were going to take a massive shift? Or did, did it kind of grab you and like take you by surprise that once you're in college, like, oh, this might not be a thing anymore? Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel like, and it's, it's kind of hard to remember exactly, but the fact that there was by, by my senior year that that online journalism course and I mean I think everyone kind of knew where things were going I don't know if we all knew how quickly it would get here because it happened pretty quickly after, after I graduated college I mean it was it was all about the web almost almost right away uh, and and I think I think the advice from at least the people who were in the know at the time was that was that it's gonna be a digital world and and not just digital but you can't just be a print reporter. You need to know how to take like a video with your phone and that and that just that kind of stuff. And that was even before it was it was uh you know before iPhones really became a big deal and people were you know taking videos and photos all the time. But that was kind of already like it was it actually wasn't even like you got to learn videos with your phone. It's like you got to get like a like a little video camera or like a little photo like a like a little like digital camera to uh, take photos just in case. That was kind of the advice then. And it, it, it actually evolved past that relatively quickly. Did you feel like you had to relearn everything? Because of course you could take a lot of the same principles and the ethics you learn and the the new structure and everything like that, how to write leads and transfer that from print to online. But was there this big learning curve after you graduated and trying to understand how the internet worked in news culture? I don't, I don't think there was a big learning curve because... A lot of the of the stuff that I consumed was online already. I mean, I had been on the internet since probably like when I was in grade school, so I kind of had an idea of how that whole thing operated as a consumer more than as as an actual practitioner, as a, as a journalist. So I just kind of used what I knew as a consumer and applied that to what I learned in school as as far as journalism goes. It is it is essentially the, it's the same type of thing. It's just accelerated because the news cycle is twenty four seven, and there are there are some technical things on on like the you know the back ends of websites that you may not learn. I mean, I didn't really learn how to use a CMS when I was in when I was in college. I, yeah. I mean, it just wasn't a thing. But I, I feel like I picked that up fairly quickly when I when I got out. I remember talking to Chad Dundas about uh, how he was covering local sports at some point in Missoula and how some of those press conferences and just the coverage of that in general was some of the driest stuff he'd ever been a part of just because <laughs> you're not getting a lot out of that and you were an associate editor of high school sports at the new york post for a while just being blunt was it difficult covering high school athletes did you get to report on like a wide variety of schools and types of people and get to tell stories or was it much more here is the score here's a write-up about how this game went and i'm done no, I, I was actually, I feel like I, I had a, a different experience than Chad did in, in that case because we're talking about New York City sports compared to Missoula sports. All respect to, to Missoula, <laughs> Montana, but there's a, whole lot of, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in New York City. I mean, I, I've, I wrote many, many crazy features about kids in the foster system and, and kids whose parents were murdered and I mean one of the one of the really bright young 
girls basketball players that I covered actually ended up getting, she was murdered. She was shot dead in, in a gang dispute while I was covering high school sports for the New York Post. These are the things that happen almost on a regular basis. And when you're covering New York sports, that's kind of, that's kind of par for the course, sadly. Uh, so actually covering high schools in New York was, was one of the more scintillating things that I've done. I didn't think it was dry at all because almost everyone had a story. It was it was uh, it was definitely not just the nuts and bolts. It was it was the it was the fascinating backstories of these people from the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, you know, Harlem, Manhattan. Uh, it, it's it was uh, it was it was a very very uh, good experience. And the best part about covering high school sports, which I think uh, can teach everyone anything, I would I would actually advise anyone to start at the bottom and cover high school sports. You're not given anything. You need to go out and get. There's no PR person for the local high schools. It's not, at least not in New York. There wasn't. You have to go out and 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 get these relationships yourself. You have to go out and seek uh, seek them out. Show up to games yourself. Introduce yourself to the coaches. Get the interviews yourself. Everything's organic. Take your own stats. I mean, everything everything is is what you get. Uh, everything everything is what you do. Whatever you get is is what you put in to high school sports. So I would advise anyone to do that because I mean, now I cover the UFC and there's PR people and you call a PR person and they, you know, they can hook you up with an interview. I mean, it's not always like that, but I think high school sports is actually the hardest thing that I've done. Did you follow any of those uh, high school students afterward when they had graduated or gone to college? Like, did you actually get a chance to see maybe one of them not go pro, but uh, go farther in their career than maybe you could have ever imagined? I mean, I've seen I've seen a whole bunch of them go pro. I mean, Lance Stevenson is someone that I covered when I was, oh, wow. when I was covering high school sports, and I mean, there's a, there's actually I mean, there's there's actually so many. I mean, I, I can't even name them. There's a lot of players in the WNBA, a lot of there's a few players in the NBA. Um, mostly mostly those two. I think there may be one or two in the NFL, but New York is all about is all about basketball. So I definitely covered a nu- a number a number of uh, of of now men and women who are who are at the highest levels of, of their sports and, and basketball uh, you talked earlier about how you had to learn at that time to get like a smaller camera and be able to record things and now people need to understand how to record video how to use an iphone if they're doing any sort of media coverage i mean really i wrote for ign and gamespot for a long time and a lot of the the interview process of when you're getting those jobs is can you be on camera? Can you talk on a mic? Can you stream? Can you do this? Like they're barely asking if you can write anymore. It's more, can you do everything surrounding that? And I think people exaggerate when they say, you know, anyone can be a journalist now. You can record your own thing. You could take it to Twitter, you could take it to Facebook. But how much do you think a journalism degree matters from a good school now compared to when it did before? Do you think because journalism has become more mainstream is not the word, but mass media and so many people have the tools, have, you can make your own blog on WordPress and you can report news and suddenly get that experience and you can use that and show people and be like, look what I've done absent a journalism degree. I've created my own presence online. I've been able to report on things in a unique way. Do you think that's even more important now than actually getting a journalism degree or do you need that foundation? I, I'm, I'm still a firm believer in the foundation and, and I do think that it is it is definitely a little it's more passable now to not have that journalism degree and, and just to get out and do it and, and have the experience but i think the i think the building blocks are still of the utmost importance because you can kind of and and maybe it's me cuz i'm more of an educated consumer with these things cuz i'm in the business but you can kind of see when someone is going about things the right way and and they understand the credibility you know the credibility issues and the accountability and and having you know, two to three sources when you're going to break something. I mean, I see so, I mean, there's so much misinformation out there on the internet. And I feel like that's being passed along by a lot of people who maybe don't have that foundation in journalism. They, they are, they're just kind of rumor mongers. And, yeah. and look, there are people who have journalism degrees who are, who are probably doing this too. So it isn't, you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're not completely, uh, they're not completely uh, with, with uh, full and in, full integrity too, just because they have a degree. But I feel like if you go to school for it and have a journalism degree, maybe not even a degree, but at least take the classes and, and or get mentored by an editor. That's actually one of the things I always tell people who ask me for advice. Uh, even if they don't have a degree, I always say, like, don't just jump in and start a blog. You do that, but also try to try to volunteer or, or get a get a, you know, a kind of a uh, an entry level position at a local newspaper or, or a local website or somewhere where you can actually work under an editor. 
because I my first job like at, at the aforementioned Times Ledger newspapers in Queens, I had this this great uh, editor. Her name her name is Roz Liston. She actually just retired. I don't even know how long she was there. She was there for like thirty years, and she's an old UPI alum. She's an, you know an old school journalist, and to this day. I can still like hear her saying things like to me in my head about how I structure a story and grammar and and I mean it, it stuck with me to this day and this is this is over ten years ago now that I that I was there that that kind of that kind of foundation and that those kind of basics and fundamentals are I think of the utmost importance and that kind of I feel I see today in in this internet culture of you know internet media that a lot of that stuff gets lost. It's amazing how important a good editor is. And it's, it's I think, the best advice, but also difficult advice to follow because it, it's tough to say, hey, go find someone who will give their time to mentor you to a certain extent or to look at your work. And there's a lot of incredible editors out there who are willing to give that time. And I, uh, your case, I totally think is perfect. And then also when I was in college, I had a roommate who... Um, he's this incredible writer, incredible editor who was just better at spotting a lot of things than I was. And just like you said, there's still times where it's like, okay, remove the fatty that's like remove this. It should be simpler. Don't go so complicated with your wording. And there's those things that stick in your head for as long as you're a writer, but it's also difficult to find that person. And it's, it's not exactly breaking news to say right now is a very bizarre time for journalism, (laughs) um, with, just the fact that people are sharing, like you said, things on social media or just Facebook that are just wholly unverified and they're shared thousands of times. And we have a, a political system that's a little bit questionable right now. Do you think actually, even though it feels bleak at time because we're talking about pulling credentials from the White House and there's always this attack on the free press, do you think we actually might see more people get a journalism degree now who are seeing what's going on and understanding how insane it is and want to contribute to continuing a free press and maybe even a stronger press that hopefully avoids the mistakes of a lot of the stuff we're doing right now i hope so but i i feel like the the trust in the the press is at an all-time low unfortunately i I feel like it's uh i've never seen it like it is now where there's just no there's not that respect for for the profession uh among among the readers which is to me is kind of odd because i feel like now people consume more i guess you know quote unquote media i wouldn't say consume more journalism consume more media than ever before it's it's the strangest thing like social me i mean social media it's in it's in it's in the the phrase right It's it's the it's the media part of it so people are consuming more articles and more videos and more and more stuff from media outlets than they ever have before yet the trust is at an all-time low and that's what has led to to fake news and that's what has led to uh you know the 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 spreading of misinformation which is which is really dangerous so i i i don't know if that's going to motivate people to to kind of get out there and do it themselves and get a journalism degree i hope so i hope that enough people realize that the people who are doing this for a living and who have integrity and who have you know have journalism degrees and, and and take pride in their in their job they're not trying to be dishonest they're not trying to pass along their own agenda they're trying to do their best to tell the truth in in, in the way they know how and and sometimes we we all make mistakes but uh, i i don't think there are i mean I, again i i don't want to generalize I'm, sh- I'm sure there are people who are intentionally being misleading in the media um some networks and some uh, outlets more than others, but the people who who have that that background in journalism and, and even the ones who don't, who have kind of studied under an editor um, or, or or a producer or a mentor, I I still have faith in those people who to tell the truth as as they know it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stick glass half full and hope that it leads to people like wanting to learn more about journalism and make it better. I'm just going to keep hoping that shit doesn't get crazier over the next however many years. Uh, I feel like journalism is like a dirty word now. It's it like, really yeah. is. Like, and that's an unbelievable bummer. And it's, it's amazing how quickly that switch flipped. Cause there's always people who question media and who, you know, are very wary of that. But I just, within a year or two, it's insane where we're at right now. Uh, 
when we talk about before the the multimedia nature of everything right now and the ability to kind of do a lot from your laptop when we try to set up this podcast you're like i'm gonna be in front of my laptop so whenever you're free we can record this uh for sports coverage does it really matter where you live you moved from new york to la and both are major markets but could you properly cover the ufc if you lived in idaho and again going back to like Ben Folks and Chad Dundas, they're in you know, Missoula, Montana, not exactly these massive media markets. Are you now able to fairly and kind of broadly cover a sport really no matter what state you're in? I think for the most part, yes. I think that there is an inherent advantage living in a, a major market. And I mean, I cover the UFC. I mean, I cover MMA. UFC is obviously the big dog in that in that space. Living in Las Vegas, where the UFC is based out of, where they hold the majority of their events, is an advantage. And and you could say living in Vegas is is one of the keys if you're going to cover the sport because of all the activity there. I live in LA, which is close enough to Las Vegas to get to when I need to get there. So that's also a good thing. It's one of the reasons why I did leave New York. Because, uh, I mean, when I left New York, New York uh, MMA wasn't even legal there. So, uh, I mean, there were a decent amount of gyms, but there there literally could not be a UFC event in New York State. And there's a much bigger culture of, of MMA in uh, in Southern California and in Las Vegas than there, there is in New York. So that's one of the reasons why I, I left. But you can certainly, I mean, everyone everyone is remote now. I mean, everything can be done over the computer, over the phone. Most of the interviews I do are not in person. They're, they're over the phone. And, and you can do that from really from anywhere. And then I type them on a laptop wherever I might be. I could be a co- at a coffee shop. I could be, you know, on the road somewhere. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but as far as like access journalism, where you have to, you have to kind of, you have to be somewhere. It's you know, at some point, you have to actually do in person stuff. You know, if you want to go to a gym and and uh, get to know fighters better and make those connections, it does help to be in certain locations. And I mean, the UFC caters to the, me- the the major media markets too. They do media lunches in LA all the time for big cards. If you live in Missoula, Montana, and I feel like I'm picking on Chad and Ben, uh, I started it. It's okay. Yeah, I'll, you're, I'll take you're, the blame on that one. You're just uh, you're just not going to get that kind of. I mean, you're not you're not gonna get, you're not going to get the people in front of you, which is you're not going to get those interviews, or maybe you will get them, but it won't be the same. You won't develop those connections. So I I still think there is an advantage depending on what sport you cover. Uh, to living in certain places and and everything is going every you know every sport is going to have a different uh, every sport every team is going to have like a different place where there is an advantage but I still do think there are the geographic uh, uh, advantages out there. When's the or what was the last live UFC event you went to? Actually, I haven't I haven't covered a live UFC event since UFC two seventeen in New York uh, oh, last man. last November. It's been a, it's been a little bit. What advantage do you feel like you had while you were there? Because, of course, there's, hey, you can get interviews in the back with these different fighters or get their immediate reactions. But I'm guessing there's also the downfall of if you're doing those interviews, you're not actually watching the fights that are going on unless they're just on screens. Like, is there a give and take there? Yeah, I mean, there. so the way the UFC has things set up is, I mean, their, their post-fight media is all streamed on their YouTube page. So everyone, any, everyone and anyone can can tune in and, and watch, you know, for that event, it was George St. Pierre and Michael Bisbing and, and Rose Namajunas and Joanna Janjacek. So anyone can tune into their YouTube page and, and watch those and watch those press conferences. The advantage about being there is that you can actually be the one asking the questions yeah. and, and you can be the one, you know, you, you have you have an idea of, of what you want to write about. You can't write about what you want to write about unless you're you're there to ask the question about about what that story is going to be. So that that's a major advantage. And I just I just like I like being in the city and, and kind of just kind of taking the temperature of of what's going on in that city. And that that to me is a big deal. It's not it isn't the same thing as being at home on your couch watching a, an event. Like being in that city all week and kind of feeling the buzz, whether there is or there is not a buzz. To me, is is a ma- is a major thing. Uh, one of the things, like uh, like <laughs> a year and a half ago, the first UFC card in New York, UFC two hundred five, oh, yeah. was the same. It was this. It was this. It was a few days after the election, the presidential election in twenty sixteen. So uh, election night was Tuesday night. 
the very next day was UFC 205 open workouts in Madison Square Garden. And then later that night, there were protests in the streets of New York about, about Donald Trump. So it was just a very, very unique situation where you have this huge fight card that's been on the UFC's mind for years in New York City at Madison Square Garden. And they have all this other stuff going on on the periphery to the UFC, but very much the main topic of conversation everywhere else in the world. So it was just a very unique situation that, and you and you couldn't kind of get that, you couldn't kind of get that feeling, the the gravity of where you are at that moment in time without being in the city covering it. I think. Yeah, that's has to be one of the most unique situations ever for a UFC fight week is to have an election like that and feel that weirdness. And I, I just know that a lot of those events, especially if you or Ariel or or Chuck or Luke get there early, there's kind of you can feel it either build or just not be there in terms of the the anticipation for it throughout the week there's many times where suddenly you know conor mcgregor's throwing things or hmm. people are doing something there's a shove and it just escalates it and i had to that's one of those things that you can't you can hear people say that or read on twitter like oh it's getting bigger but you don't really know unless you're there and, and speaking of the ufc for those who don't know who are listening the ufc had just Inked this deal uh, in North America with ESPN, ESPN Plus, and they're moving a few of their live events there and some different pieces of content to that platform. Is MMA the most uh, demanding sport on its fans when it comes to how, where, and when to view fights? Because at this point, it's there's Fight Pass for right now. There's still Fox. There's ESPN Plus. There's the pay per view. They're probably getting other partners in this media package that they're building for 2019. Is there a certain point, of course, as a journalist, like, you know where all this stuff is and you're going to be watching it. But for someone who is on that borderline between casual and hardcore, is it just almost too much to ask of someone to actually be able to watch all this stuff? I feel like I feel like the UFC is kind of going in a different direction compared to where they were a few years ago, where it's not as much about trying to get every fan to watch every event as it used to be. There was a time where they were doing far fewer events and every card was was stacked with names that, that most people would recognize, hardcore fans would recognize, some, you know, some casual fans would recognize a number of the names on the card. That is no longer the case. It's, it's a totally different system now. They are very much a, a content business where they produce a ton of content, which is also very valuable to these these broadcast bodies streaming services cable networks because of how much live content they produce i mean the amount of live sports the ufc produces is in a year is very impressive it's almost every saturday you know it's almost every weekend uh, they're they're probably going to do about 40 events this year they did i think 38 last year so it'll be in that range again this year so that's almost every single weekend aside from you know from a handful uh it's uh it's 12 or 13 fights, so that's about six, seven hours of programming. You can pencil that in, you know, just about every weekend if you're a network or a streaming service to have that that block of time covered, and there's a built-in fan base. Uh, no matter who is fighting, if the UFC is on, there is that hardcore audience that will tune in and watch it. And to me, that is kind of the direction they've moved in. They kind of want to be like, the okay, well, we know that UFC is going to be on every, you know every Saturday. I'm gonna uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna tune in. I, I know UFC is on Saturday. Okay, UFC is on. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to you know put it on you know where, wherever it might end up being that day. If it's FS1, Fox, ESPN Plus, pay per view, more than the you know few weeks in between events, a lot of promotion for the for a big event, and then you know all the cat you know kind of casual fans are on board. It's more about volume. It's it's more about quantity than quality, and uh, I guess you could say uh, right now. Isn't that structure kind of working against the star focused nature of the UFC and the idea that you need to build these people up and have people care early on? Like if you have uh Zabit Magomed Sharapov like let's say for example for example on ESPN plus and you get 175,000 people to watch that or less that's someone who th- there might be a star born in that moment but there's only these 175,000 people but if you want that person to that fighter to graduate to a larger network you're not really bringing this fan base no one knows who that is and previously when you have these these tentpole events or these these certain number people 
there's there's a big audience every single time. So if someone breaks out on the undercard, there's already this fan base ready to see what they're going to do next. How do you, and of course, this is an impossible question to ask you, but I'll ask it anyway. How do you carry momentum for a star who might be born on one of these smaller shows that the UFC is okay if the casual audience is not seeing when no one knows who that is? How do you take that person and make them a star? Is there like a logical progression there? Or do you think they've not even really figured that out? Yeah, it's it's um this it's still a very young process that they're trying to to pull off. The business model is still a very new one, and no and and no one knows how to really build the star because you could also say the old what they used to do putting all the big fights on pay per view almost all, every fight on pay per view there was a there was a much there was a much smaller audience on pay per view than there yeah. would be on FS one you know on cable. Only, only you know, a few hundred thousand people are really gonna buy, are gonna pay sixty bucks or or however much it is to watch pay per view. So maybe putting a you know a budding star there isn't good because he doesn't have the most eyes. So you want to put that person, I guess, on like a big fox, which has, which has the most eyes. But there's been really no, there hasn't really been a a uh, correlation between people having great fights on on big fox and then tra- that transferring over to them being a star later. The one thing that I can that I can say, with with some confidence about building stars, is that it really has it doesn't have that much to do with how fighters perform inside the cage. Yeah. It's 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 true. I mean, it's it, there's no if if the best fighters were the biggest stars, and Demetrius Johnson would be would be the biggest star, one of the biggest stars in UFC history. And of course, he's the flyweight champion. He has the the record for the most title defenses in UFC history. He's dominant. He's exciting. He finishes, but you know, he finishes with with some uh, you know ridiculous moves that look like they're out of, out of a pro wrestling match. Uh, but uh, no one, wa- no one really watches his fights. I mean, not no one, but he's not he's not one of the bigger stars in the company, and he's probably the the least famous champion. Even though he may be the best fighter, he's probably the best fighter in the world. Um, the most exciting fighters are not the biggest stars. Robbie Lawler is one of the biggest, you know, the most exciting fighters in the history of MMA, and he's never been a big draw as far as as far as the box office, as far as pay per view pay per views go, so it's not it's not how good you are, it's not how exciting of a fighter you are. It really is more about your personality outside the cage and and the interviews that you do and the media that you do and the way that you carry yourself and and how well you speak and how well how well you can get fans to invest in who you are as a person because that will that will give them an incentive to watch you fight. Um, on the other hand, may make fans hate you so much that they want to see you get knocked out. That's been a very, uh, very good formula for Floyd Mayweather over the years. People really don't like him, but they want to tune in to people either love him or hate him. So they, they love, they love him. They want to see him win. So they buy his fights. They hate him. They want to see him get knocked out. So they buy his fights. McGregor has a little bit of that too. Ronda Rousey had that. That's been, that's been the one thing that I can say with confidence is what works, but not everyone can pull that off. Not everyone has the charisma of those people, but having charisma and having personality outside the cage is a is a ticket to 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 big bucks. Yeah, and it's there's some parallels you can draw to let's say you look at the NBA where Kawhi Leonard on the Spurs, no personality, has tr- you know one of the best probably five players in the league right now, but is not getting these shoe deals because people don't really relate to him or or know what he's like. And they look at Russell Westbrook, who is probably a you know, and it's still an incredible NBA player, but lower tier than Kawhi Leonard. But, you know, he's getting these $100 million shoe deals and, you know, Jordan endorsements. And I think the UFC is just the the logical extreme of that, where there's these people who are incredible and don't make very much money just because people don't care. And the fact that you're right, like the idea of how to make a star, like no one knows how to do that. It takes so many different things to align. You need to possibly be the first from a specific country or have a big mouth in the right moment against the right person. It just all lines up that way. And and going back to that ESPN deal, the deal is big, but the original aspiration for what the TV deal, the second big TV deal after the Fox deal would be I think the UFC had bigger plans for the, the the amount they would get. And there's still a lot that could happen because they're getting other partners. But have we hit the growth ceiling for MMA? Because most sports have peaks and valleys based on stars. But for football, even 
if there's not a lot of stars on, let's say, the New England Patriots, you're still going to root for your team and your city no matter what. You're not going to stop being a fan when there's no stars in your team. You're still going to root for your team. For MMA, it's all about these individuals who come and go. Can it really expect to get much bigger than it is right now? Do you see this being, you talk about Dana White saying like, oh, global motherfucking domination. We're going to be the biggest thing ever. Is this maybe as big as MMA can get? It might be. It's a very volatile business. And I think that what you just said is on the money. People grow up rooting for a team from where they live or or it's handed down through generations. I'm a Mets fan because I, I grew up in Queens. My grandfather was a Mets fan. There isn't that tie that that the UFC has. There isn't that investment that's kind of with you from when you were young um, like it is in, in the team in the big team sports. There's just not. So that's so how does the UFC kind of remedy that? Well, it's hard. It's it's a star based business. The UFC is uh, they feel like that that they're that their own they're their own home team, right? So they feel like that the UFC can kind of be sold anywhere, and and people will watch just just because of those three letters. And in some cases, that's correct. They do have a a they do have a hardcore fan base that will watch the UFC no matter who is fighting. But that fan base, I feel like, is as it's probably as small as it has been in a long time now. Um, because of so, uh, there's so there are so many fights, and people are picking and choosing. Whereas when there when there were fewer fights, fewer fight cards, everything felt special, and you wanted to watch everything. And I was one of those fans years ago that I I watched every single fight on every single card, and I was I was uh, I mean I was addicted to it. But now there are so there are so many that I work in the industry, and there are names on the prelims. I don't I don't even know who these people are sometimes, and because it's just so much. The sheer volume is incredible. Um, I, I, I think that the UFC can get bigger because there can be another person come along and be like McGregor or be like Rousey. But it really is, it's it's more dependent on stars now than it ever was. And it's becoming more like boxing now than it ever was, right? I mean, it, it's, still, it's still a better business model than boxing has because there are more fighters promoted and more fighters are well-known than boxers are. Boxers are still, it's still the very big stars who are well-known and everyone else, no one knows who they are. The UFC still has a much broader uh, spectrum of, of stars and kind of mid-range draws than boxing does. So, and I mean, the UFC is also the one brand in MMA that people recognize, whereas boxing has multiple promoters, et cetera, et cetera. But as far as, far as the growth goes, I think it can get, it can, it can grow bigger, but it would need another McGregor-sized star or Ronda Rousey size star to kind of lift it to that level, or a bunch of a bunch of stars that are like in the George St. Pierre level or a John Jones level who can do very very well and kind of keep people interested over the course of a full year. But but right now the disparity between the big events, the Conor McGregor events, and and the Ronda Rousey events, and and like the Demetrius Johnson event events. There, there's like no middle class anymore. It's, it's, it's kind of like the United States economy where there's, there's the, the rich have gotten richer. The big events still draw incredible numbers, but the lower level events draw much fewer than the, uh, you know, as far as buys than they ever did before. And it is super strange where I was in the same boat as you, where I watched every single event, even if it's like 4 a.m. in like a Manila or, or like some random area where you're like, all right, well, I'm signing up for this. I'm doing this. And now being at the point where you don't know, not even just the fight pass fighters, you'll be like FS1 and one of the like middle card fights. You're like, I just don't know who this guy is. I, I have no idea. And I didn't even see the announcement that this dude signed. It, it's weird being in that spot uh for people who don't know too much about mma and don't cover it at all what do you think from your experience for doing this for so long what's the most challenging aspect of covering mma when you compare it to other sports when you said that, that maybe some of the most exciting interesting stuff you did was high school sports so you have that experience in with different types of athletes what have you found to be the the toughest part about writing about not just the ufc but mma as a whole it's a really good question. I've never really considered what the toughest part is. I, I think like one of the one of the best parts about covering MMA is the access to the athletes and really just how open and candid they are. Uh, there is there is a, a tendency uh, for athletes in other sports to kind of be guarded 
because especially in team sports where it's all about the team, it's all about you know not causing any controversy. Whereas in MMA, controversy actually sells. So there is there is a an incentive for fighters to speak their minds, say how they truly feel, to talk trash. So that is actually one of the and to be open and to be honest, and that that's actually one of the best parts about MMA. Uh, as far as as tough parts, you know, I I don't I don't know. I that's <laughs> I've never really kind of put it in those terms. Like, what's tough about the sport? Well, let I me think, let yeah. me contextualize that because I think one that came to mind that I know would be weird for me is you get to know the athletes, and while you're not trying to become their friends, you might learn about their difficult upbringing, their families, their demons, their successes, their failures, and various aspects that make them relatable to you and to an audience and how you convey that on MMA fighting, whichever site you're writing for. When you're watching an incredible KO of someone who you've covered closely and gotten to know, how can that be difficult to have this weird, I'm enjoying the spectacle of a this roundhouse kick or this spinning back fist KO, but then in the back of your mind, you know what that person has gone through, who their family is, and how much they might have needed that win in that moment. Can getting to know these people who are putting their lives in the line is maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but putting their futures in the line by going in the octagon, is that difficult? Yeah, absolutely. That, that That's a very good point. And uh, it, I guess it's hard for me to to kind of I, I kind of I, I'm I'm in the forest, so I'm I'm kind of seeing the trees instead of the whole forest. But that is certainly one of the things that is hard about it. And and there was a, there was a case just recently where where Frankie Edgar, uh, oh, yeah. who is uh, I mean just one of the best guys in the entire sport. Went to, we went um, to the same college, so I I have a big appreciation for Frankie Edgar. Yeah, and and uh, even before I was in the sport. Uh, I was I was a big fan of Frankie Edgar before I I was just a fan of MMA of the UFC. I was a big Frankie Edgar fan. He was uh, I'm from New York. He's from New Jersey. He is a he's a smaller gentleman. I'm I'm a shorter gentleman too. <laughs> um, he's of Italian you know heritage. I'm of, of Italian heritage. So I kind of had that, and that's kind of what we talked about before about having that investment in a fighter. So I I was a big Frankie Edgar fan when I was younger, and uh, so I kind of almost grew up watching him. And, uh, and, and then, and then being in the sport and meeting him and covering him just, just as good of a guy as, as you, you thought he would be, and maybe even better in some cases. I mean, just a class act through and through. Um, so he, he got knocked out recently against Brian Ortega and, uh, and yeah, you have to, I mean, I'm a journalist, so you have to kind of be neutral and, and, uh, it was an incredible knockout by Ortega, but certainly part of me was, was, was pretty bummed out that, Frankie Edgar got got knocked out. First knockout of his, you know, loss of his career. One of the toughest dudes, most gritty, durable dudes in the history of the sport. It, it's it always it happens to everyone eventually, and 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 that was that was Frankie's time to kind of get to get got as as they would say in the in the wire. Uh, and so that was kind of uh, that was kind of you know in the back of my mind I was I was pretty bummed, but you got to focus and, and do the job, of course. Uh, but yeah, that is that and that, and that happens. I mean, there I don't think I mean a card might not go by. Where I'm not thinking like, oh wow, you know, we're knockout. Oh, I hope he's okay, or I hope she's okay. You know, that that kind of happens on the regular in the sport, and and that's kind of the kind of the, the one the one thing that I I think fans and and maybe even I, I try to think that the media will will still kind of realize this, but I I think fans sometimes forget when they're so engrossed in the sport just how brutal and just how dangerous and just how uh, you know, real this is. I mean, it. it you, you said being hyperbolic about putting your life on the line, but really, truly, it is. I mean, yeah. you never know what could happen in that cage when, when there are two people in there and uh, horrible things have happened and there have been serious injuries. Uh, it's it's a very dangerous sport and, and every fight can be life-altering and it is really good to keep that in mind as a journalist. Every You know, every fight card you watch, that something terrible could happen and, and these people are... Are are really modern day warriors, and they're and they're doing something just incredibly uh, impressive. Just to get it, just to step in there is so incredibly brave and impressive. And and fans, you know, some of the things I see on social media about fighters, oh, this fighter was was scared, or this fighter is uh, you know, using some derogatory, profane language. I was like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. these people, these people are like the toughest people in the world. Like you have no idea. 
these people are are really incredible. They're like they're like I mean it's it's uh, to do that and to train the way they do and to and then get in the cage and fight somebody in a cage in front of tens of thousands or millions of people. That is that is a set of cojones that I I could I could not even imagine. I would never look at my Twitter mentions if I was a fighter. Even if I was winning, like people would still just be assholes. I again when I was reviewing video games much smaller scale and much less on the line than when someone's in a cage punching someone else. But the, just the, the comments you'd get if someone didn't like what you wrote are brutal. And now I'm in video game development and I'm currently terrified to see whenever what we're working on comes out. Like, I don't even want to see what people are saying about it. I couldn't imagine going out and just, you know, essentially going out in my underwear, fighting someone. And if I get knocked out, which is this traumatic moment for me, seeing these people, who don't know me, who have no idea what I've been through, being like, man, that guy is a, you know, an expletive this, an expletive that. Like, that has to be... If you're a fighter, you probably have a certain degree of mental toughness, but that I couldn't imagine how frustrating that could be. Uh, in a similar vein to the question before about maybe it being difficult for you to turn your brain off when you're watching these fights because you know these athletes so well, do you have seen business practices with fighter pay, lack of a union, Reebok deal, the fact that the fighters aren't getting cut of the, a cut of the TV deal, and various other issues make it hard to turn your brain off and enjoy the highest level of MMA without kind of being like, man, this could be so much better because plenty of sports leagues have skeletons in their closets, but the UFC feels unique in that they're, the fighters, like we just mentioned, are putting their lives in the line to a certain extent and in very many cases aren't being paid a living wage. If you're an undercard fighter making 10 and 10 flying to Brazil and you lose, you're making 10 and then the, the cost of your camp, the cost of paying your trainers and everything like that, you're probably losing money. Is it a struggle for you who is someone very educated on this to ignore that and just be like, I'm going to go enjoy the fights? Yeah, I, I that's actually, and you know, now that we continue talking, I'm thinking more about some of the some of the toughest parts about covering the sport. That's one of them. It's it's very it's very tough to to see the. I mean, I I think that I think the UFC is not different from a lot of other corporations. They're trying to get the most out of their out of their workers, and 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 they're trying to pay them as little as they possibly can in order to maximize profits. And that's just kind of what capitalism is, right? And until you have organized labor in a union, and that's one that's one of the things that I have covered extensively is the organization effort, which is being led by Leslie Smith. And there's a whole thing going on where she filed a charge recently with the National Labor Relations Board against the UFC. That's a whole, We can do a whole podcast on that alone. Yeah, really. But one of, the, one of the more frustrating things about the sport is the... How, how that whole how, how that kind of goes down what they go through as far as fighters the dangers they put themselves in how much they get paid the lack of benefits they have the lack of job security they have and on top of that kind of the like the 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 fear of speaking out against that because they the UFC is kind of it's where everyone wants to be it's where it's where you know it's it's where if you're if you're a fighter I mean, ninety percent of fighters, ninety nine percent of fighters want to be in, go to the UFC and be a, the champion because that's the best. That's the best league in the world. The UFC champion is considered the best in the world in that weight class. So most fighters want to be there, and it's hard to speak out against that when you fear for your your job and you fear for your spot. Not even fear for your job, but you you fear. About not getting you know the right the right fights and you fear of being mistreated and you know you don't you don't want retaliation and and just like the the powerlessness that I think a lot of fighters feel about this kind of thing and so much so that I th- I think there's a lot of apathy involved in it too because it's like well this is how it is and and we're fighters and there's that there's that incredible mentality that uh, you know that just hard nose like you know almost almost military. Uh, you know, soldier mentality where we're just going to go and forge ahead and 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 work our you know our butts off and 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 uh, work as hard as we possibly can and just go out there and fight and let the chips fall where they may. There's a lot of that feeling in MMA, and uh, and I think there are that, and that's been one of the reasons why and one of the one of the obstacles toward getting getting a union, getting an association, getting any kind of organized labor collective bargaining agreement because there are people who kind of still feel 
that way either apathy or just that like you know that that uh hard nose you know just just go to work every day lunch pail type of mentality where they're they're just like yeah when you know this is this is what this is the way it is and we can't change it we're just gonna move forward with it and and fans are i mean it's it's tough to kind of sell uh, it's kind of, it's tough to sell organized labor and, and unions on fans most fans really don't care they just want to see the fights uh, I mean, just look at social media, you can see how their reactions, uh, you know, to fighters are when they don't fight or when someone misses weight. Uh, fans just want to see good fights, uh, or, or, you know, they want to see their, their favorite fighters win. They want to see good fights and they don't really, there isn't, and, and, and look, it's not every fan again, I don't want to generalize, but I, th- I feel like the majority of fans are just looking for that, for that great fight card and, th- and those great fights. And they're not as concerned about how much fighters get paid and, and what kind of benefits fighters have and, and that kind of thing. But to me, you know, to me, fights and fighters will only get better if they get paid more. And if they if they have those benefits and they have, you know, full, you know, full full scale health insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But but hey, that's that's I'm not I'm not an economist. Um, but that's that's how that's how that's how I feel. I'll always remember Chris Lieben, who was like ultimate former ultimate fighter contestant, former fighter who had just, you know, fight of the night after fight of the night, putting it online, having this style where it just seemed like he was a zombie, like just taking all the big hits and throwing them back. And then being in bad health later and being forced to, I think it was do real estate for a while. And just to see someone who gave it all to the sport and who you would think in almost any other sport, when you reach that level of maybe quote unquote fame and that level of success, that person is maybe not taking care of for life, but taking care of for a long time. And then you see someone like that and you're like, man, like that's, they need to find a way to help these people beyond giving them, you know, you, friends of UFC jobs. Like, oh, hey, Forrest Griffin, you now work for us or Matt Hughes or or Chuck Liddell, you work for us because we like you. Like there has to be a better solution than that. Uh, I don't want to be the negative forever. So let's, let's do one last question that's more on the fun side of all of this. What fights and storylines are you looking forward to in 2018? Because unlike last year, I feel like there's a bunch of interesting cards, interesting things happening and on the horizon right now i mean just today which we're recording this will be out in like a week and a half or something like that there's you know eddie alvarez dustin poirier which is starting to kind of give some clarity to the lightweight division so is there any one storyline that stands out that you really hope gets resolved and you're excited to see the conclusion of that in 2018 well i think i think the big thing and and kind of the elephant in the room in in the ufc of course is is conor mcgregor what's going to happen with him He's got a court date on June fourteenth. Uh, I I don't think he's going to serve any jail time for the the famous uh, the infamous bus attack. But I don't know I don't know where he's going to stand legally. I'm not sure uh, you know as as far as him having to deal with lawsuits. I haven't heard anything about that. But I don't know I don't know if he's out of the woods when when it comes to that. And I'm not sure what that means for his future in the UFC. Do I think he'll fight again? A hundred percent. I think he'll definitely fight again. Uh, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't fight again. When that is, I don't know, and then and then that kind of the Conor McGregor storyline kind of trickles down to Habib Nurmagomedov, who is the lightweight champion now. McGregor was the lightweight champion, never lost his belt inside the cage. It got stripped from him. Uh, Nurmagomedov is the new champion after he beat Ally Quinta in uh, in uh, April. So that whole situation. I mean, I think McGregor versus Nurmagomedov. Especially considering that that whole beef was the origin of the of a uh, aforementioned bus attack, uh, it's one of the biggest fights, if not the biggest fight in UFC history. If they can if they can put it together, uh, if they do put it together, it probably wouldn't be until the end of this year or after that. So that is kind of that is kind of the one thing that, I mean, that's going to be a huge deal if it ever materializes. So that's kind of one of the things that I'm looking forward to seeing what the heck happens uh, there. But I mean, until until we know about then, there's still a lot of stuff that's going on the rest of the year, and I think there's some really good cards coming up on pay per view. I really like UFC 225. We got the return of CM Punk. Yeah, to the, to the UFC. UFC fighter CM Punk. Uh, yeah, UFC. Uh, this is in Chicago. We have Robert Whittaker defending his middleweight title against Yoel Romero on that card. Um, uh, Holly Holm was on that card. That's a that's a very interesting card. It's not gonna it's not gonna draw a million pay per view buys, but there's a lot of really interesting fights on that card. And then uh, there's a big super fight this summer on on uh, on July uh, July sixth 
I'm sorry, July 7th, between Stipe Miocic, who is the heavyweight champion, against Daniel Cormier, who is the light heavyweight champion, two of the pound-for-pound best fighters in the world. And I think the winner of this fight, you can make a case for being the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world, especially if John Jones can, uh, continues uh, his suspension. We don't know how long he's in. That's, that's another thing that I should also note. That's another kind of a lingering question in the UFC. There's a lot when of elephants is, in the room right yeah. now. A lot of, like, this right. needs to happen before any of this can happen ideas. Right, and, and that's kind of like, there's a lot of question marks, John Jones being one of them. How long is this suspension going to be? We don't know. I'm, I can't believe it's taken this long, uh, his whole USADA situation, his failed drug test. I don't know why, you know why it's taking as long as it is now. Then there's the whole, is Brock Lesnar coming back to the UFC from WWE? That's kind of another elephant in the room because there were talks that he's going to come back, but he's still with WWE. He's still wrestling. He's lost their, their title. Um, I think that they wanted to do Brock Lesnar versus John Jones. Um, sometime this year, but without John Jones, we don't know. So that, there's a lot of stuff kind of ruminating in the background, but even with all of the unknown, there's still a whole lot of, of big fights coming up this, uh, you know, later this year, this summer. Uh, Dana White said this week that they're trying to put together George St. Pierre versus Nate Diaz in Los Angeles uh, for UFC 227 on August 4th. That would be that would be an amazing spectacle. What I mean, crazy uh, thing. Yeah, spectacle is uh, the right word for that. Yeah, I mean that that would be that would be really that would be really really fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I think everyone wants wants uh, Nate Diaz to come back and, and and fight again, and they want Nick Diaz's brother to come back and fight again. And George St. Pierre, of course, uh, has just the, you know what what an incredible uh, way for him to come back after four years away back at UFC 217 to win the middleweight title. You know, in his first fight back after being the longtime welterweight champion. So there's a lot of intrigue I think ahead. I think it's actually going to be a pretty decent year on pay-per-view for the UFC when it all kind of comes together. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we'll see where all these question marks uh, lead us with the McGregors and the Lesners and uh, the Joneses of the world. What a weird, fun year. It's a weird sport. It's a yeah, weird, it, it's a is, it is a sport. weird goddamn sport. Uh, what are you working on right now that you could talk about and where can people find you on social media? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I have a few things that I'm working on right now and a couple of things I, I can't mention. Um, but uh, I guess I guess uh, today I, I, I wrote about um, there was a new development in the story about Leslie Smith filing a charge with the NLRB against the UFC. Uh, the NLRB is uh, has flagged this case, um, which is an alleged, you know, uh, unlawful labor practice case. They've, they've kind of flagged it for uh, possible injunctive relief. Pretty much what that means is they, they could expedite it to to kind of rule quickly in U.S. District Court um, to determine whether or not Leslie Smith was indeed kind of uh, singled out by the UFC because of her role in organizing fighters. Um, so that could, that could be something that happens in the next few weeks if it happens quickly. Um, and I'm not really sh- really sure what an injunction would do. I don't know if that means Leslie Smith would get her job back and the UFC would get you know her roster spot back in the UFC. Not 100 percent sure, but this this whole story with with Smith and the UFC and the NLRB could be one that has ramifications for years and years to come. Because if if the NLRB decides that UFC fighters are employees and not independent contractors, how they're they're classified now. It could change the game completely, and it could lead to unionization. I don't know if that will happen. I, I still have my doubts um, about that. But this whole this whole case and this whole story could uh, could really be a big one. So I, I've been I'm, I'll be following that, of course. Um, there's a few other things that I'm working on. Again, I, don't, I can't really uh, talk about them, but uh, you can follow me, of course. You know, at MMAfighting.com, and my Twitter is uh, it's Mark underscore Raymondi M A R C underscore R A I M O N D I. All right, perfect. Thanks so much for doing this, Mark. I even though this is mostly a video game focused podcast, I'm a game developer. Uh, I have always been this massive MMA fan. It's been fun talking to a whole bunch of media members who I really respect, and I, I've you know seen you on MMA fighting since the start, and it's been cool to see how far you've gone there, and a lot of the different preview shows you've done at events. So really appreciate what you do. Uh, I know you can't talk about everything you're working on, but looking forward to what you're writing, and looking forward to your hot Twitter takes with all of these great UFC events coming up. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Alright, perfect. Thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.